This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen to episode 12 for part one of this two-part case. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a teenage mother who was a ward of the state reluctantly gave up her baby son, Dennis. She was convinced it was the right thing to do, and she was told her child would be safe and loved. When Dennis would have turned 19, his mother, Jerry, tried to contact him, only to discover her son died when he was just three and a half years old. But when Jerry looked into Dennis's death, all was not what it seemed. She pushed to get answers for the little boy she lost. Would justice prevail? Welcome to episode 13 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. A few years after Dennis Jurgen's biological mother Jerry had discovered that the son she reluctantly put up for adoption had died, she resumed her pursuit for the truth. She sent her surviving son to the library to find all the information he could about Dennis's death. Jerry asked her daughter to go to the courthouse to get Dennis's death certificate. Because the mode of death was listed as deferred, it was still classed as an open case. There was no statute of limitations on murder, so someone could be prosecuted. Over two decades after the little boy had died, his case was finally getting some attention. Jerry took it to the White Bear Police Department, where the Chief of Investigations, Lieutenant Clarence Harvey, pulled the file. The photographs inside were alarming even for a seasoned officer. When they saw the bruised three-and-a-half-year-old and his injuries, they were shocked. Lieutenant Harvey and Dennis's mother could not believe that no one had been charged for murder and the case had just languished on file in the police station. Lieutenant Harvey went to the Ramsey County Medical Officer Dr Michael McGee who only needed to glance at the file to know that it was not an accident that caused Dennis Jurgen's death. After two decades, the cause was changed from deferred to homicide. Speaking with People magazine, Dr McGee subsequently said, It isn't some medical mystery. I looked at the autopsy report and said child abuse. Dennis's mother, Jerry, went to the press with the story to try and raise the profile of the case. Journalists were eager to speak with the family. In January 1987, almost 22 years after he was buried, the remains of Dennis Jurgens were exhumed for examination by the Ramsey County Medical Examiner, Dr Michael McGee. He had changed the death certificate in October 1986 to homicide, but he wanted to see some clear evidence. Dennis's body was incredibly well preserved. He still wore the crown of flowers placed on his head when he was first buried. Although the flowers had wilted, they still concealed his bruises. Dr. McGee was able to re-examine the small bowel and said that the perforation was caused by blunt force trauma about 8 to 48 hours before Dennis died. There was no way the injury could have been caused by a fall unless it was from at least 6 feet directly onto a protruding object. Dr. McGee believed the trauma was likely to have been directly applied to Dennis's stomach the three-year-old boy would have possibly been standing or lying with his back against a flat surface while something with a force the doctor likened to a train hitting Dennis's stomach 
forcing his small bowel against his spine and tearing it. The contents of the bowel would have spilled into the stomach, causing agonising pain and eventually death. After a memo was sent to all police personnel in the White Bear Department, Detective Greg Kindle, a specialist in juvenile abuse crimes, and Detective Ron Meehan were assigned the case. They knew that Dennis's adopted mother, Lois Jurgens, would never confess, so they tracked down the original detective from 1965. Former officer Robert Vanderweise told them that a lot was missing from the files, including testimony from family members who believe Lois was abusive. Vanderweise was dying of cancer, but continued to assist in the case during his final months of life. The detectives did not need to look far for witnesses because people were quickly coming forward to finally tell the truth about the type of person Lois Jurgens was. The stories they recounted were heartbreaking. Dennis was force-fed. He was slapped and yanked by the ears and had his head held under water until he gasped for air. Lois Jurgens had come from a large family. The consensus was they stuck together, no matter what. They would meet up every week in their parents' home with their own families. Most of the relatives had to spend time around Lois Jurgens. However, they did not like her. They said she was nasty, bitter, controlling and demanding. Lois did not let the children be children. They were not allowed to take treats if anyone offered, and they were forbidden from getting dirty or even playing. She presented the persona of a devout Catholic, although she rarely went to church. Some recalled her walking around with a cross raised above her head, trying to drive out the devil. Others remember her flashing her bare breast to a room full of people. She was unbalanced and unpleasant to be around. However, most family members felt that what they saw was none of their business, and the abuse was never reported. In under two years, Dennis had gone from a bubbly social child to a frightened little lonely boy. He even stopped crying in his last months, instead just whimpering, afraid to draw more attention to himself. Some had asked Lois Jurgens if she hated Dennis so much, why didn't she just give him back to the authorities? She answered that they would not let her adopt any more children if she did. People were afraid to tell the truth after Dennis died. Those that did speak out divulged that they had received threats. Once the media began reporting on the reopening of the case... More calls came in. Witnesses reported what they had been afraid to share years before. Lois Jurgens would tie Dennis's arms and legs to his crib to keep him lying down. When he was not constrained by his limbs, Lois would put a cloth restraining device on his crib so that he could not climb out. Barbara Wisdorf had been good friends with Joanne. Lois Jurgens' niece. She was often at the house when Lois and the boys would visit. On one occasion, Dennis was on the floor and Lois was trying to get him to walk. When he fell down to crawl, Lois would pick him up and hit him. It went on for 15 minutes. Each time, he would get struck harder. Lois Jurgens seemed to hate Dennis. She called him stupid, ugly, fat and clumsy all the time. Lois Jurgens' niece Barbara would go home and cry to her mother about what she had seen. She saw Lois feeding Dennis mashed potato with a spoon. Lois held his mouth open and forced the food in. He was crying and gagging, but she did not stop. When he vomited, she continued to shovel the food and vomit into his mouth. 
No one in the house seemed to be as shocked as Barbara was. In August 1963, Barbara went camping with the family in northern Minnesota. Lois Jurgens and the boys came to stay for a night. The next morning, it was stiflingly hot in the tents, and Lois tried to force Dennis to use the potty. Barbara could hear Lois screaming at Dennis and hitting him. She decided to call the welfare department when she got back, but no one ever returned her call. After over 20 years, the past was finally catching up with the Jurgens. Lois Jurgens was no longer the menacing, frightful woman she had been. She spent most of her time locked in her house, which had gone from being pristinely clean to resembling a junkyard. The detectives had reached out to Robert, the Jurgens' first child, Dennis's big brother. After thinking about what to do for weeks, Robert decided to tell them everything he knew. He would testify against his mother. In October 1986, the detectives had met with Robert Jurgens. When he saw the autopsy photos of Dennis's beaten body, he hardly flinched. He said, Dennis always looked like that. There was a year and a half between Robert and Dennis and a world of difference in how they were treated. After the children were removed from the Jurgens' care, Robert, then a teenager, began running away from home. From the age of 15, he developed a drug addiction. Robert was hospitalised not long after, and he managed to get sober. Incredibly, he remained close to his parents, and his relationship with them improved as he grew up. Robert became a police officer, and when he was 21, he met and married a young woman who worked as a paralegal. The couple would then welcome their first child, a baby boy. By the time the police came to talk to him about the death of his brother Dennis, Robert's son was the same age Dennis Jurgens had been when he died. After the investigation reopened and he started to hear more, the truth about his little brother's death, Robert's loyalty was torn between his duty as a police officer and his parents. In turmoil, he tried to speak to his mother and father about what happened to Dennis, but he was met with a wall of silence. They would not discuss it. The Jurgens' attorney had told them not to speak to anyone about it, and that included their now only son, Robert. Eventually, Robert decided to open up about the events all those years ago. He revealed to the White Bear detectives that he knew what happened to Dennis. He told them everything he had experienced and witnessed as a five-year-old, and he was certain his mother had killed Dennis. On January 28, 1987, Lois Jurgens' defence attorney Douglas Thompson received a phone call from the clerk at the court, who informed him that along with his client... He needed to be in court the following morning, as Lois would be indicted. Testimony in the case had been heard by a grand jury, which included a submission from Lois Jurgens' husband, Harold. Attorney Thompson had in fact fought for Harold Jurgens not to testify during the grand jury, arguing that the law back in 1965 prohibited spouses from testifying against one another. He wanted to apply the law retrospectively, as it would have been when the crime was committed. However, it was argued by County Attorney Tom Foley that these were laws of the past and current laws needed to be followed. The current laws allow spouses to testify against one another in cases that involve injuries to children. Harold Jurgens could now stand up in court against his wife. The following morning, Lois Jurgens appeared in District Judge David Marsden's courtroom. 
She was charged with both second-degree murder and third-degree murder. Jerry Sherwood, as she was then known, was finally giving her son a voice. All she could do was watch from the courtroom gallery when Lois Jergens, then in her 60s, was arraigned the next day. It had been 21 years, 9 months and 19 days since Dennis's death, and it was a bittersweet moment for Jerry, who would state to the Star Tribune, I feel great because of the fact it's all getting ready to start now. It's a shame it didn't happen 21 years ago, but it happened, and I thank God. Lois Jurgens pleaded not guilty to the charges. Judge David Marsden set bail at $25,000. Lois Jurgens would post bail that same day. She ignored all the questions that were hurled at her by reporters as she left the courtroom. After she was out of earshot, Ramsey County Attorney Tom Foley spoke about Dennis and remarked, he died a very tragic death, a very brutal death, and that's why his mother is standing trial. Defence attorney Douglas Thompson would attempt to have the indictment against Lois Jurgens thrown out. He said that Ramsey County Medical Examiner Dr Michael McGee did not have the authority to change the classification of death on Dennis's death certificate. He argued that back when Dennis died, the child's death had been investigated by a now-defunct coroner's inquest. The defence attorney filed papers in court to argue that, at the very least, the medical examiner needed to call a new coroner's jury to review the case and to determine whether Dennis had in fact been murdered. A coroner's jury was now outdated. It had consisted of regular citizens in Minnesota, much like a trial jury, who would be ordered to examine the body of a victim in suspicious or undetermined deaths. The jury had been made up of six citizens. Six citizens who had never performed an autopsy, never watched an autopsy, and had no medical training. Shortly after Dennis died back in 1965, these six regular citizens were ushered into the Ramsey Court morgue, where they were asked to examine the bruised and battered body of Dennis. They were asked to remember what they saw, and ultimately determined that there was not enough evidence for the cause to be ruled a homicide. They were sent away from the morgue and never heard about the case or Dennis Jurgens until now. With his death back in the headlines, some members of the jury came forward recounting what they saw. Stanley Wyatross was one of the six men asked to view the body, then simply identified as Jurgens from White Bear Lake. Only men were asked as the authorities felt it too difficult a task for a woman. Even with a warning, when the coroner pulled back the sheet, the men were not prepared to see Dennis Jurgens' remains. Stanley Wyatross had six children, one close to the victim's age. Every part of the small boy's body was covered with bruises. The coroner's jury member recalled thinking the mark on the child's penis was not a cut, but a rip. A fellow jury member, Norman Rose, also said, I remember the kid vividly. I've wondered about it all these years. Another, Robert Vaught, remarked, I just assumed they had caught whoever did it, and that's why we never heard any more about it. While defence attorney Douglas Thompson had referred to the coroner's jury as a coroner's inquest, this was not quite the case. A coroner's inquest is performed by a coroner, not six regular citizens with no training of any kind. As it turned out, according to coroner Thomas Votel, the original medical examiner who ruled the death deferred, 
no inquest was ever carried out. Votel said that when he viewed Dennis's body, he had concluded that Dennis was the victim of battered child syndrome, adding that he had only deferred the ruling until the police investigation was complete. However, he refused to explain why he never changed the manner of death. It soon became evident that the defence attorney was planning a staunch defence of Lois Jurgens during her upcoming trial. He was working on having the third-degree murder charge dismissed because it was similar to manslaughter charges. Unlike a murder charge, a manslaughter charge has a statute of limitations. By the time Lois was arrested, the statute had long since passed. Attorney Douglas Thompson was then hoping to have the second-degree murder charge dismissed because he said there was not enough evidence that his client had intended to kill Dennis, which is a crucial element when it comes to second-degree murder. However, just ten days before the trial was scheduled to begin, this swiftly changed to an insanity defence. Prosecutors would contend that this argument had been brought up much too late to be considered. But according to the defence attorney, he had only just discovered that three psychiatrists hired by his team had determined that Lois Jurgens met the standard for an insanity defence. Jurgens was ordered to be psychologically evaluated at St. Paul Ramsey Medical Centre. In Minnesota, an insanity defence is exceptionally difficult to prove. The burden of proof is solely on the defendant. They must adequately prove that, at the time of the crime, they did not comprehend what they were doing or know that it was wrong. For Lois Jurgens' defence team, this would be even more difficult, because how would she be able to prove what her state of mind was 22 years prior? Lois answered questions asked by doctors by referring back to her own abusive childhood. When met with accusations others had made about her, she became wildly defensive. She responded furiously, calling them idiots, liars, alcoholics and worse. The assistant county attorneys assigned to the case were Melinda Elledge, and Clayton Robinson Jr. Melinda Elledge was adopted as a child and she had a son the same age Dennis had been when he died. The pair were not experienced in murder cases but they were passionate about getting justice for Dennis Jurgens after all these years. Jury selection began on May 4th, 1987. Defence attorney Douglas Thompson spoke plainly when he told the jury that his client Lois Jurgens was a terrible mother and she was abusive. By being so frank, it allowed him to dismiss any jurors who would not be able to overlook the abuse when reviewing the events surrounding the day of Dennis's death. At that point, there were no records of the original hearing regarding Robert Jurgens' custody which referred to Dennis's death in 1965. Although officials had searched high and low, the documents were nowhere to be found. That remained the case until the day before the trial, which began on May 12, 1987. The transcripts of the original hearing had been found while government workers were spring-cleaning an office. It would be used during the trial to refresh the memories of some witnesses, in particular experts who had discarded their own records or lost them during the decades that had since passed. At the time, Lois Jurgens was the oldest person to stand trial for murder. In an almost unheard move, Dennis's biological mother, Jerry, was allowed to sit in the courtroom and watched the trial despite the fact she was going to be called as a prosecution witness. As presiding judge David Marsden said, so that she will understand more about her son's life and death. 
During opening statements, the prosecution would tell the jury that life for Dennis inside the Jurgens' home was filled with violence and hatred from the outset. Three enlarged photos were shown to the court. Each photo set the backdrop for the stages of Dennis's short life. Dennis, age one, smiling and happy, cute, bubbly and adorable with a blonde shock of hair. Another picture, Dennis with his older brother Robert, again nothing outwardly untoward. The final photo was horrific. An image of the same boy was taken during the autopsy. Dennis Jurgen's face beaten, his arms stiff in a raised position, his fists clenched like they were frozen in time, expressing the agony of the boy's final moments alive. Attorney Melinda Elledge said Dennis had undergone a, quote, terrible transformation from a happy, friendly little boy to a terrified, wizened little old man of a child. Even in death, a relative will tell you, Dennis looks old. Speaking about the day Dennis died, the prosecutors confirmed that Harold had been away in northern Wisconsin. The most appalling abuse occurred when Harold was not home. The defence attorney acknowledged this during his opening statements. The Lois Jurgens was undoubtedly not a good mother, and she should never have been allowed to adopt children. However, he said this was not a defence to murder, nor did it prove it. Numerous witnesses were finally willing to testify against Lois Jurgens. The woman who once struck fear into the minds of those who were unfortunate enough to know her now sat at the defence table. Lois Jurgens' sister Beverly had the courage to address the court. In 1965, Beverly had testified that she had not seen any signs of abuse before Dennis's death. Twenty-two years later, she was willing to take the stand and admit that she had lied. She said that at the time, she felt that family should try and stick together. Now she had had a change of heart and was open about what she saw in the few years that Dennis was part of the Jurgens family. Beverly testified that Dennis had been made to wear sunglasses to hide his black eyes. He had also been tied to his crib. Carlene Hillsgen, who was 12 years old when her cousin Dennis died, also told the courtroom how Dennis was often forced to wear large sunglasses to conceal his bruised and beaten face and black eyes. Defence attorney Thompson questioned how she could remember something that happened so long ago. The witness poignantly replied, Some things just stand out in your memory. Things between the Jurgens family and Carlene Hillsgen's parents had been quite tempestuous. Carlene's mother had testified in a hearing after the death of Dennis about whether their adopted son Robert should be removed from their care. Carlene Hillsgen said that Lois Jurgens called her parents and said, One of these days I'm going to burn your house down so that you can see how it feels to have one of your kids die. Carlene's father, Richard Norton, would bluntly testify that Lois had in fact said she was going to burn those little bastards in your house. The Jurgen's neighbours, Ivan and Gladys DeMars, said that on one occasion, Dennis was having trouble speaking while he was talking in the backyard of the family's home. Ivan DeMars said that Lois interrupted Dennis as he struggled, telling the toddler, you can't even talk. You're so stupid. I don't even know why we are saddled with you. Gladys DeMars also recollected another disturbing incident where Lois yanked Dennis out of the sandbox in the backyard by one of his ears and dragged him into the house. While these were extremely distressing scenes, Neither Ivan nor Gladys DeMars thought to report Lois Jurgens to child welfare 
stating they did not believe it was any of their business. Many of the witnesses were now facing up to the guilt they had carried for not reporting the abuse at the time. Barbara Windorf had reported Lois Jurgens to child welfare. Previous testimony had mentioned that Lois had placed Dennis on his potty and became furious when he would not go to the bathroom. Barbara testified that she heard something that sounded like a slapping noise, followed by the sound of Dennis crying. One of the defendant's relatives would subsequently threaten Barbara Windorf's husband and child with a gun. Thankfully, the weapon was not real, although it did not make the incident any less terrifying. The original officers on the case had been asked to testify, but sadly Officer Carol Chuck had suffered a heart attack a week earlier, so only Robert Vanderweiss could attend. He said that he felt as though the defendant's brother, White Bear Police Lieutenant Jerome Zerwas, had interfered in the investigation. Still, Vanderweiss was forbidden to state what Zerwas had said about protecting his sister, as it was hearsay. Dennis's brother Robert would be called to testify against his mother. On May 20th, he took to the witness stand. Robert told the court that he had been lonely and afraid before Dennis was adopted. He recounted how Lois Jurgens dunked Dennis's head into a tub of water. The witness said he was terrified and did not know what to do. Robert Jurgens then told the court about how he saw Dennis rolling down the basement stairs after being hit several times by his mother. Lois Jurgens did not stop attacking the child. She ran down after him and continued to shout while shaking and hitting him. Robert explained to the court how Lois Jurgens would pull Dennis off the ground by his ears and would spank him with a spatula or rolling pin. Describing the night Dennis died, Robert remembered walking to his younger sibling's room after hearing Lois Jurgens crying out Dennis's name. The boy was limp in her arms as she shook him and slapped his back. Giving up, she then put Dennis back in his cot and called for Harold. Speaking about the appearance of his brother, Robert said, Dennis's body just kind of draped. His arms just hung. He wasn't acting normal. She had picked him up under the arms. He was just dangling. The testimony of Robert was particularly poignant. Now a father of a three-and-a-half-year-old son himself, he knew what it meant to be a parent. During his testimony, Robert had to take a break as he was overcome with emotion. When asked how Dennis reacted to Lois Jurgens, Robert said, Dennis used to cry, try to get away. Later on, Dennis didn't do as much crying and he didn't do any running away. I would recall that he more or less submitted and would just kind of whimper and not get into that heavy crying. Prosecuting attorney Melinda Elledge then asked Robert if there was a difference between his relationship with his mother and Dennis's relationship with her. Robert replied, I don't know exactly the reason why, but I cherished my mother. I did everything she said. I ate my food. I picked up my toys. I kept neat and Dennis didn't. And as a result, Dennis received more traumatic reprimands. It would be revealed during the trial that Ramsey County child welfare workers had received at least two reports of concern that Lois Jurgens was abusing Dennis. However, it was not known if they responded to those concerns. Dr. Roy Peterson testified that, as far as he was aware, no investigation had been launched after he reported his disquiet that Dennis was being abused at home. 
Dr. Peterson had been the doctor to tend to Dennis when he was burned so badly he needed to be hospitalised. While Lois Jurgens claimed Dennis had burned himself in the bath, Dr. Peterson knew that such severe burns mainly occur when boiling water is poured or spilled on somebody who is wearing clothing, as clothing retains the heat. He also noted that while Lois claimed she grabbed Dennis from the hot bath water, she had no burns on her hands. When the doctor realised there was no traction on his report, he even spoke with a child welfare officer, but it seemed nothing was done. During the trial, the prosecution would zone in on Dennis's exact cause of death. By now, it was evident that Dennis was the victim of prolonged physical abuse, but it was not known what precisely had killed him. The authorities had to determine if it was one specific beating or a culmination of abuse. Dr. Robert Woodburn, who had performed the original autopsy, would testify that he was confident that some form of external force had ruptured Dennis's bowel, which ultimately caused his death. A ruptured bowel was not consistent with a simple triple fall in the house or outside. Dr. Thomas Votel had told the jury that it was his opinion that Dennis had died as a result of child abuse. Once again, Dr. Votel said that he planned on changing Dennis's manner of death from deferred to homicide once investigators provided him with the information he requested. That information was whether Dennis's ruptured bowel could have been caused by a fall. However, investigators never followed up, and when he left his coroner's job three years later, he left Dennis's death certificate incomplete. It remained that way for over two decades. In the original autopsy performed in 1965, the coroner found over 50 bruises on Dennis's body, as well as scabs on the boy's head and face. There was also evidence of starvation, scarring from old injuries and bite marks on his genitals. Dr. Michael McGee, who had changed the death certificate to show the cause of death was homicide, and who subsequently performed an autopsy on the exhumed body of Dennis Jurgens, testified at the trial. He reiterated that the injuries that caused Dennis's death were not from a fall, but a deliberate blow to the abdomen, which led to a rupture in his bowel. Dr. McGee agreed with the determination Dennis had died from child abuse. However, he said he could not pinpoint the exact cause. The doctor said that Dennis was a battered child, but could not ascertain whether the final blow to end his life had been inflicted to his front side or his backside. It could not be determined what had caused the injury. Since it could not be established... Dr. McGee could not say with certainty that the blow was calculated to kill Dennis. However, he went on to liken the force needed to perforate a bowel to the force of a child in a car crash, hitting the dashboard without a seatbelt on. Much of the focus was on the timing of Dennis's injuries. Dr. McGee told the courtroom that it most likely took between 8 and 48 hours from the time that Dennis's bowel developed a small perforation for enough fecal matter to leak into the abdominal cavity and eventually kill him. The doctor said he did not believe that Dennis's bowel ripped the very moment he suffered traumatic injury, but could not establish the time between him receiving the injury and the bowel perforation. Dr. McGee painted a very heartbreaking portrait of Dennis's last hours on Earth, telling the courtroom that Dennis would have been in so much pain that it would have rendered him unable to walk or even use the bathroom. In fact, he would have been in so much pain that he would not have been able to hold a conversation. It was too much for his traumatised, frail body to bear. the defence would rest without presenting any evidence of its own. 
Defence attorney Douglas Thompson believed that the jury would reach the determination that the prosecution had failed to provide sufficient evidence that Lois Jurgens had killed her son, as the defence attorney was overheard saying, It doesn't take long to peel the bark off a rotten log. During the closing arguments, Assistant Ramsey County Attorney Clayton Robinson described Lois Jergens as a, quote, cold, calculating, brutal and unfeeling woman who had finally got rid of a problem child whom she despised. Robson told the jury that Dennis had been tortured for two years and reviewed the catalogue of physical abuse that had been inflicted on the little boy. The attorney said it was unfortunate that professionals had not seen through Lois Jergens' subterfuge and that neighbours and relatives did not report what they had seen. Robson explained that in 1965 it would have been impossible to try the case as it relied on circumstantial and medical evidence alone. He told the court... Battered children are typically not the type of individuals you would see out on the street, struck in their lower abdomen with a blunt object. This is a crime that occurs at home. It is consistent with a private crime, the private punishment that Lois Jurgens inflicted. Robson asked the jury not to abandon their common sense and find that Lois Jurgens caused Dennis's death. The defence attorney, however, said that the witnesses who testified against Lois Jurgens had held grudges against her, adding that there was no physical evidence to show that the abuse, which it had been admitted took place, had killed Dennis. Attorney Douglas Thompson said, This is not a homicide case. This is a case of abuse. On one hand, the abuse of Dennis Jurgens and on the other hand the abuse of reason and the abuse of common sense. Thompson blamed Dr McGee who had changed the death certificate to state homicide as the manner of death without any new evidence. Before the jury was sent out, presiding Judge Marsden explained the 1965 statutes on the degrees of murder. If a person kills another with intent but without premeditation, this is second-degree murder. If they found that Lois Jurgens had intended to kill Dennis, she would be guilty of second-degree murder. If a person killed another without intent while committing a felony, in this case aggravated assault, they would be guilty of third-degree murder. The judge also explained the term battered child syndrome, which by 1987 was both a legally and medically recognised concept in which children had been injured on purpose. The jury would deliberate for three and a half hours before reaching a unanimous decision. They found Lois Jurgens not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of murder in the third degree. As the verdict was read aloud, Jerry and her children cheered, cried and then hugged one another. The baby can rest in peace now, she said. Harold Jurgens rushed to his wife's side to provide comfort. Following the verdict... Lois Jurgens was allowed to remain free on bail until the sentencing phase. Judge Marsden had the choice of sentencing her under the law in 1965, which would call for a maximum prison sentence of 25 years, or under the law in 1987, which would suggest a sentence of 105 months. The defence put forward the theory that Lois Jurgens was legally insane at the time Dennis was killed. The defence called on two witnesses to support that she was mentally ill at the time of the abuse. Dr James Stephens said that Lois believed that Dennis could not feel any pain. 
She had told him that when she saw a car door slam on Dennis and he did not complain. She also said that Dennis had thanked her when she spanked him. Dr. Stefans believed that Lois Jurgens was legally insane, adding that it was his belief that along with her husband, Lois experienced folly à deux. This is a shared delusion. The doctor told the courtroom that Lois had suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. An example of the delusion she experienced was that Dennis could not feel pain. She also believed that her mother-in-law wanted to kill her, which was another figment of her imagination. While Lois Jurgens claimed that she believed that Dennis could not feel pain, this contradicted earlier testimony from those who heard Dennis crying and screaming. Dr. Kenneth Perkins would agree, also testifying that Lois was legally insane. The prosecution called on court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. William Erickson. He testified that Lois Jurgens was not legally insane at the time of Dennis's murder. The doctor did not believe that Lois was psychotic when she killed Dennis, and even if she had been a paranoid schizophrenic, she would have known that what she was doing was wrong. He also challenged the earlier testimony that Lois believed Dennis could not feel pain, informing the courtroom that this was a common assertion among child abusers. Frankly, I would take it as an excuse, he said. Furthermore, six months after Dennis's death, a psychiatric report was produced and did not feature any conclusions that Lois Jurgens showed signs of mental illness. Ultimately, the jury who deliberated for four hours would find that Lois Jurgens was not legally insane at the time of Dennis's death. She was immediately sentenced under 1965 law and was to face up to 25 years in prison. Before she left the courtroom, Lois Jurgens seemed detached from what was going on around her complaining that a guard was taking her purse. Jerry Sherwood finally got some justice for the little boy she loved and lost. After Lois Jurgens was sentenced, Jerry said, 25 years. Dennis would be 25 years old in December, and she got 25 years. Jerry went on to become the Vice President of the Children's Justice Initiative, which is a non-profit organisation that champions the cause of abused children. Lois Jurgens appealed her conviction, arguing that the delay between the crime being committed and the trial gave the prosecution an advantage. But the appeal was denied. After attempting to get early release for a number of years, it was finally approved in 1995. She would serve just eight years behind bars. Lois Jurgens returned home to her waiting husband, Harold. Five years after her release, the Jurgens were in the headlines once again when it was announced that Harold had died. Following his death, there was much speculation that Lois Jurgens had poisoned him. The day before he passed away, an anonymous person contacted the police. The caller said that they were concerned for Harold's welfare. He had recently been admitted to Lakeview Hospital in Stillwater. With this tip, the police went to the hospital the day before Harold died to interview him and to review his medical records. They found that Harold had elevated levels of unusual chemicals in his bloodstream, and within 24 hours he would pass away. Police revealed that the caller had identified Lois Jurgens as a suspect in the poisoning. However, an autopsy concluded that Harold had died from a heart attack and had not been poisoned. 
there have been adaptations of this case for television, film and books, most notably A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel and the NBC television film A Child Lost Forever. Jerry Sherwood spoke about what state officials had said and the betrayal she felt. When they took him from me, they said he would have a home, a family, all the things I couldn't give him. Robert Jurgens mulled over questions about his brother's death and what was done. Why did this happen? That's the question that doesn't get talked about. I guess it happened because no one wanted to go through the white picket fence of the Jurgens' house and step on toes. They just did not want to walk through that white picket fence. Jerome Zerr was Lois Jurgens' brother, who was second in command at the time of Dennis's death, sued Robert Vanderweise for $50,000 in a personal injury lawsuit. He claimed that the former officer had made public statements about him that were false and malicious. Vanderweise spent the last three months of his life fighting this lawsuit before he succumbed to bone cancer. Lois Jurgens died in 2013, never once admitting to what she had done to Dennis. She had complained to family members about Dennis's wild behaviour and how he needed to be trained. On the day Dennis died, she had told Officer Carol Chuck, all that training down the drain. Lois Jurgens was buried at Union Cemetery in Maplewood, Ramsey County with her husband Harold, who passed away 13 years earlier. A cross decorates the top of their shared headstone. An engraving pictures hearts surrounding their names, above the words, Our love is forever. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.